I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. World exhibitions were frequently held in the 1800s, and you could say perhaps that this was the true start of globalization. The grand expositions held in major cities attracted people from all over Europe and the States and the world. And it was at such places that ideas were exchanged, deals were made, and cultures collided. If we take a look at one exhibition in particular, we find that it had particularly lasting effects on today's culture and especially on today's wine culture. The Paris Exposition of 1889 and 1890. The exposition was meant to mark the 100-year anniversary of the storming of the Bastille. This was a huge event for which the Eiffel Tower was created. Construction workers even worked all night long the night before the exposition to make it safe for visitors to enter. At this exposition, Claude Debussy heard the Gamelan Orchestra's Valley which has influenced composition ever since. Annie Oakley and Buffalo Bill performed a Wild Wild West show for thousands of people. And Whistler, Gauguin, and Van Gogh were all in attendance. The largest diamond in the known world was on display, and Thomas Edison was there to see it. In fact, Edison's stand in the Hall of Machinery was one of the most crowded. A correspondent for the New York Times noted, There is no use in trying to epitomize the exhibition in routine, for it partakes of all the kaleidoscopic delight of every Parisian fete. A comic opera, which was written for the voice of Californian Sybil Sanderson, included Sanderson holding out a high G, reported to be the Eiffel Tower note. There were also exhibits and classes about wine. In 1889, the class that had the highest attendance was the class on fermented beverages. Tasting counters featuring over 8,000 wineries could be sampled. Before packaging rules and international trade standards, this kind of exposure was helpful to merchants to be able to spot frauds entering their markets. And indeed, fraud was on everyone's mind. One person in control of a wine jury created a last-minute rule saying that no wines would be judged with false origins on the label. And several wines were disqualified, including many American wines that used the term Burgundy and Chablis to refer to wine styles as opposed to appellations. 
a letter from Washington's Department of Agriculture pleaded the U.S.'s case. And because the wines listed their origins, in addition to Chablis or Burgundy, which they referred to as styles, they were allowed to be judged. And half of the wines entered from California, a state which at the time was producing about 11 million cases of wine a year, won gold medals, including a wine from California's Howell Mountain. At another jury in 1900, tensions rose between American and French producers. French producers contended that terroir, the place of origin of a wine, was the most important, while American winemakers insisted that a wine's characteristics were relative only to its chemical composition. H.W. Wiley, a chemist in the U.S. government and jury member, noted that, It is now well established that the character of a wine depends solely on its chemical composition. It is further established that this character depends first upon the constitution of the grape itself, and second upon the changes to which the grape juices are subjected in passing from the fresh state to that of the finished wine. These are changes of a chemical nature and are induced chiefly by certain chemical reactions known as ferments. This argument, origin versus chemistry, remained at the crux of the wine juries for the remainder of the exposition, and Champagne got particularly involved. Walbaum, a trade union president for Champagne, said this in a speech at the exposition. We have sought to promote our dear Champagne wineries, despite the relentless struggle against competitors who appropriate its magical name but will never match its intimidable products. Its qualities are a special and precious gift of nature and can only become from the soil of Champagne. Champagne producers saw the exposition as a great place to claim sovereign use over their name. A Champagne exhibit showed just how intricate the process was. Ultimately, the tensions that were teased out in the exhibition helped to drive some change in the U.S., even before Prohibition. And ultimately, the idea of a wine's terroir won out over the importance of a wine's chemistry, though the two concepts did not necessarily exclude one another. The 1889 and 1890 Paris Expositions helped to define where California wine was and where it might be heading. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand
Margaret Mandavi on the show today. Hello, how are you? Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I haven't told you this, but in my life, I've lived in many places. Been was obviously born and raised in Switzerland and came to America many, many years ago. But I've always regretted, sincerely regretted that I've never lived in New York. So uh, it's great to be here. I like your tempo. I like all what you have to offer, which is a lot. Well, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Originally, you're from Switzerland. Right. And when did you immigrate to the United States? Well, I actually married uh, right out of school. I went, uh, went to a college in Clarence, Switzerland, and met an American. And then he went back to the States, and he came and, in a way, got me. In 1946, we got married. And I came to America in 1947. Would you believe from Switzerland to South Dakota? Well, they both start with S. So. <laughs> and that was quite a change, but it was also very, let me say, in a way, interesting because I remember my father saying, or writing at that time, everything was written on little thin paper blue envelopes and sent airmail, send me a picture without fog. This was a little house we stayed in, in south of Hot Springs, South Dakota. And I, I had to write back, but that isn't fog. There just isn't anything because we were 90 miles from the first tree. Trees grew up in the Black Hills, but not down between Wyoming and Nebraska in that little corner of Badland. So uh, it was interesting. But you always, even when you're in remote areas, kept an interest in culture and the arts. Yes. We actually lived on an Indian reservation. Uh, oh, well, anyway. How did you get to an Indian reservation? Well, it was <laughs> my uh, first husband, Phil Weaver, was an army officer. And he got stationed in a place called Igloo, South Dakota. And this was a place where they guarded mustard gas. Mustard gas wasn't even used in the First World War, but they had a place to guard it, an Indian reservation. No, I don't want to say much more. But <laughs> and eventually you continued further west. Then uh, we were transferred, we were back to Holland, to Germany, from there to Spokane, Washington, to Okinawa, to Japan, to Cincinnati, Ohio, to Puerto Rico, and then he retired and we came to Napa Valley. And what was your first introduction to Napa Valley? To some friends, uh, very enchanted to see it. And I grew up on the Lago Maggiore, which is an Italian part of Switzerland in the Canton Ticino. And when I first saw Napa Valley and we came there for four days to visit these friends, I said, it just smells like where I came from. There were vineyards, vineyards. They smelled of lavender, of rosemary, of eucalyptus. It was pretty nice. And there was a wonderful Purple hills and vines on the bottom, all those vineyards. Lovely. Because in Ticino, they have a lot of Merlot. You're right. The Merlot del Ticino. Yes. <laughs> so you get to Napa Valley, and what's it like at that time? 
Well, can you imagine 1960 or 61, 60? It was still very rural. Uh, I think the major money crop was prunes. Prunes. Yes. There were prunes, there were pears, there were walnuts, there was pasture land, and many, many, oh, everything was for sale, and you should have bought it. Yeah, but it was probably cheaper back then. Than <laughs> $1,000 to $2,000 an acre. Really? <laughs> planted. And today, I don't know if you've seen the, the latest quotes, but it's more like 350000 <laughs> So that's after the war, after Prohibition, yes. after economic depression. depression. Yes, yes. What was the scene like? Well, people didn't really, I don't think they really hoped had big hope. It was kind of a, while it was beautiful, it may have been also for many wineries a little discouraging. Where were we going? Because during Prohibition really marked it, you know. And one thing, during Prohibition, there was a lot of wine trafficking going on. As you know, <laughs> I think there was more drunk during Prohibition than before or after and the Bay Area people came with their empty demijohns to buy wine. And I think the plunk was probably a dollar a gallon, and the varietals were $2 a gallon. And now they come up with the empty demijohns, but you know, nobody could hang out a shingle. This is a winery, right? It was provision. So they went where there was a palm tree. So, that was the marker. That was the marker, right. The, the palm tree was where you could get the yeah. hooch. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, you know, in San Francisco, had a, Italians and people that liked wine, so there was quite a trade. I wasn't there, but, you know, at that time, in '60, the old-timers, they talked about prohibition like if it was yesterday. And there was actually a veteran's home in that area. Very f famous veterans' home. But that's the other story. When I came home, the town of Yountville, which is now a destination for culinary delights and, of course, wineries and that sort of thing where you leave your car in the hotel and go by bicycle and take balloon rides and all that stuff. But Yountville was kind of the... It was kind of the, the, the dump, you know. It didn't have a paved road. But it had 20 bars that were made out of cardboard and corrugated aluminum, just put up. And because the veterans' home, which was on the hill, they could not sell or have liquor in an area that was less than a mile and a half away. And Yountville was exactly a mile and a half. And so Yountville had 10 taxi cabs. Napa had one, which is the town. And uh, the veterans did a lot of, made a lot of trips down to Yountville. And I don't think they drank much wine. They used to ferry back and forth to yeah. the, the yeah. local. <laughs> there were 2,200 veterans. Institution. There were probably 99 plus percent male that. Some of them still from the First World War at that time, yes. And what did you find yourself doing when you moved to the valley? Well, I had three small children. I did the, I did the housefrau thing. 
started to get acquainted and did some, uh, you know, benefits joints of clubs, the Garden Club and something called Young Audiences, which was bringing music to elementary schools that had maybe no idea of what an oboe was or what a conductor did. So I got involved in that, and through that I got introduced to some wineries because a good friend, Kay Ryman, and I had this idea that we could have a concert in a winery. There were 21 wineries at the time. Ask me how many there are today. How many are there today? <laughs> Over 400. 400, wow. <laughs> and so I, we went to the possibilities, names that you may have heard of, like Beringer and Louis Martini and Christian Brother, Beaulieu, Inglenook, and Charles Cook. Those were possibilities. And every place they slammed the door in our face. A concert here? Well, we're making wine. Okay. Well, well, the Cook. monks, you know, sometimes they're not <laughs> well, into that. You know, the, the brothers. <laughs> the good brothers. At that time, they even made brandy, you know. So I, uh, at Charles Cook, they listened. And they said, well, it's a possibility. And so we had this concert, and I think we had a, people that helped us from the city, and we, we made $2,000 for young audiences with this concert. Oh, That's so a fair amount of money proud. at that time. We did everything ourselves. Like, I brought my upright piano in my Volkswagen bus, made the tickets on the Gestetner, and drew the big posters. Where were I going to hang the posters? At that time, there was no French laundry. There were no restaurants in a garage. Maybe you hung them in the schools and in in the grocery store, but people came. And so that's how it started. Then I packed my stuff up, and it was nice. And about three weeks later, the PR person from Charles Cook called me and said, Margaret, why don't you come out here? I want to talk to you. Maybe you want to work for us. Hark. Well, okay, what am I going to do? Well, you could give tours. So that's how my life started in the wine industry. And how many tour guides were there in Napa at that time? And I can only say at Charles Cook. There were not very many. And uh, they told stories. At Barringer's, for instance, there was one tour guide that always said that they lost one-third of their wines because an oak tree had its root right into the big cask and drank it. You know, we made up. But anyway, at Charles Cook, we were serious. <laughs> and uh, we had sometimes up to 10 guests a day, or 20 even on a weekend and they it was fun and uh, and I was the only I was the first and only female all the tour guides were much amended when they saw me they said what has this world come to since when does a woman know anything about wine you know and I had to challenge and prove myself made two dollars an hour and when it rained we were sent home but but fun you were the first female tour guide yes and you were still interested in doing concerts and events, too. Well, that I brought to their mind, and later on we could do that again next year. It, it was an interesting time. As I said, this, this valley had really nothing to offer culturally. But on the other hand, we were close to San Francisco, and everything was there, and the traffic wasn't like today, so... You could get from San Francisco to Napa yeah. pretty quickly if you wanted to. At that time, I mean, uh, an hour and you were at the bridges. But today, don't 
changed. <laughs> so people used to come out for picnics and yes, kind of retreats. Yes, yes. That's, and, and to visit wineries. And at that time, tasting was free. You, the tours and tasting was free. Now they're, everything gets charged, yes. Well, that's how popular it became, right? Yes, like, yes. People used to come out and, and visit the wineries, but there weren't really a place to do. There wasn't an institution, a concert hall, a restaurant no, to do a concert. No, 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 no. But it had other things that you don't have anymore. You know, at that time, you could find a picnic place right next to a vineyard, and, it, you know, you could ride your bike. It was fine. Today, everything is so regulated, and you can't picnic anymore. <laughs> There's a lot more vineyards Everything's there. Everything's fenced, you know. <laughs> they say for the birds, but I think it's fenced for the reason. <laughs> so the Charles Krug Winery was where the Mondavi family was. Exact, exactly. Robert and Peter Mondavi together had built the Charles Krug Winery up. The Mondavi family bought it in 1943 during the war. And they... It was a dilapidated winery that Krug died in, nine, yeah, in 1900. He came from Prussia, I believe, in, in 1850s or something, and built the first commercial winery in Napa Valley in uh, 1851. And as long as he was in charge, it was very, it was an esteemed fine winery, but he died around 1900 and had no heirs. And the winery kind of went into the hands of the bank and of speculators and so forth. So the Mondavis got it really for a good price at a good time and built it up. And when I first came to California and I would ask, of course, Napa Valley, what wine should I buy? It was always Charles Cook Chenin Blanc. <laughs> you don't hear much about Chenevlon anymore, but that was at the time the wine. And uh, then, of course, the brothers' history split. I worked for them about two and a half years, never knew who Robert or Peter were, but, you know, <laughs> they were certainly important, and Robert left his mark wherever he went. And then Robert felt after the split that he had enough time, the energy, and also maybe three children that would follow the dynasty. And so he built his winery in Oakville in 1966. I left Charles Cook after the split. The most of us did. The climate changed. I said it became a Nazi regime. They put in a time clock and all stuff like that. Anyway. Then I rejoined when he built the winery because the PR person that knew me personally kind of asked me, would I help Robert Mondavi start this year? And that's when I got to know Robert, who was tireless, a perfectionist, had the great passion and endeavor to make. He always said a wine that could possibly be in the class of the great wines of the world because we have the land, we have the climate, we have the grape variety, we have the knowledge, we can do it. And I think he changed Napa Valley. What was your first encounter with the Robert Mondavi winery? Well, it was still in, when I first saw it, it was still in scaffolding. There was an arch and a tower being built. And then when it was finished, 
I always admired its Spanish colonial style. I love architecture. And then when they asked me if I would join them, they opened in the fall of uh, 67. 67. And um, so I joined, and I was again the only female tour guide. Most of the men from Charles Cook had come down with the same opinion that Waters this will come to. And so, uh, but because I speak some languages, I was often given wonderful groups. The winery became immediately a success, I would say. Not only was it right on Highway 29, a new art the first new winery since Prohibition. Bob was very, you know, innovative. He was an innovator. He got all the technical things, stainless steel tanks, size filters, all the regulated temperatures, and uh, he did cold fermentation for the whites. He got the French barrels to HG, the reds and the whites too. So it was a new winery. And so from pretty much the wine world, people started to come and visit us. And it got to be very interesting. Who did you meet giving tours? Who would come by? Well, every wine week. <laughs> maybe, maybe suddenly there was somebody there from Chateau Latour. Or it would be a great chef, or it would be Jimmy Doolittle, <laughs> the general. <laughs> you know, all kinds of people came by and... I had the fun of uh, of introducing them to wine, and I was naturally very enthusiastic and loved to tell them what I knew. And 1967, if you go back in vintages, was probably one of the worst vintages we had. It rained for seven or eight months. Everything had to be direct through the mud. It was a horrible year vintage-wise. But... And we always thought maybe someday nobody would come. But we went as low as five people, but they still came and we gave the tours, yeah. And at that time, what sort of wine was being made? Cabernet? Well, you know, as you must imagine, now the first year we only had white wine because it wasn't ready, right? So, but the one wine that it was a signature wine for Robert Mondavi was the Fumé Blanc, a Sauvignon Blanc wine that we introduced and become quite immediately known. It was a dry white wine that, however, had some fruitiness. At that time, maybe even some herbaceous character. was oak-aged for about three to six months, so it had complexity. And it was the wine that, for what we had to offer, the fruits of the sea, you know, our crab, our fish, our, our oysters, all of that went very well with that wine. And then, of course, we also had started to have a restaurant or two that was <laughs> above hamburgers and minestrone. And you were situated at the winery right next to the Tokalon Vineyard. Yes. And, you know, at that time, this is history, so I can talk about it. Peter and Robert had obviously the differences that got into a, a law processor. And it took uh, 10 years to be dissolved. It was in 78. It was actually concluded, I think, by a judge in Fresno, I think. And Bob won all 13 points. So then, though, 
as Robert Mondavi would. He was he was not interested in the money. He was interested in the vignette, and that's when he got the Tokalon vignette, about five hundred premium acres in Napa Valley. I would think it's the first growth of the valley. And you proposed to do a concert at the facility. Yes. <laughs> so, and Mr. Mondavi was Mr. Mondavi to me and said, "Look." You got it. You got the arch. We can make a stage behind it. Look at that. You have the lawn. We can seat quite a few people there. Let's have a concert. Bob had a wonderful aptitude. He listened to everything. And he said, if it's good, don't talk about it. Do it. <laughs> and so I, later on, I said, look at all those empty walls in the vineyard room. I know so many artists that would like to hang out, some good ones. Could we have an art show? Do it. <laughs> so we started with that. A few years later, the cooking schools, the great chefs, you know, do it. I was, of course, as I say, at that time, full of it and full of energy and wanted to do it. And uh, we had success because Bob wanted the, what he called it, the soft cell. He wanted to show wine with art, culture, and cuisine so that it added to the joie de vivre, to the joy of life, you know, that you could have a better meal with leftovers if you had a good glass of wine. That The idea was to bring the family together, you know, good food, good wine, good company. In my long life, I can say many, many of the great moments in your life are around the table. What was it like organizing that first concert? Well, do you believe that I brought the piano in my Volkswagen bus? <laughs> we just took a chance, and about 400 people came. I got a little group from the Napa Valley Symphony. I think it was nine or ten musicians, and about 400 people came, and we charged $2.50, and there was a wine tasting, and the Rouge Noir Cheese Company offered us cheese, you know, Everything was free party, but we didn't really know what we were doing. So I remember at that time everything was cash. I had a shoebox with $1,000 in it, <laughs> and I brought it to the office on Monday, and I said, now don't put that into general funds. Keep it for me for next year. Well, with that, then the next year I was able to have a down payment for Cal Chater, a great jazz group, uh, Vince Guaraldi had did the music for Peanuts and Preservation Hall from New Orleans. Then it took $350 down payment for each. 2,000 people came. We didn't know what we were doing. I tell you, they, they parked in the vineyards. We didn't have enough facilities. But wine was free, cheese was flowing. And also at that time, now you remember this, the early 70s, there were a little of that blue smoke all over. And the people folded up the chairs and sat on the grass. It looks like a festival to me. So we called it the Robert Mondavi Jazz Festival. Next year I had so much money I could have Ella Fitzgerald. I could have Betty Goodman. I could have Lena Horne. So the start, it started always the idea of bringing wine, food, and the arts together. What was Ella Fitzgerald like? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. One of the greatest singers ever, yes. And what a personality. And so you developed a food program as well. 
well, later in 76, I was lucky. Two guys came around and they had started a little cooking school in Napa Valley and they had French chefs and uh, somehow they lost their lease. They had accommodations for six in sort of the guest house around the place and they came to us. They were also not very big business people so they were in debt and everything and I brought this to Robert Mondavi and I said, you always wanted a cooking school. Look, these guys are talented. At that time, you know, 76 still, we didn't quite have the French Michelin system where a chef was made a star, right? The restaurant was known by chef. So we brought in all these French Michelin stars, always three-star chefs, Many had never been to California. They may have had Olivant California, you know, a little opinion on our wines. They tasted. They were impressed. The schools were fantastic. We had 80% repeats. People waited to get for sure for the chefs. And we then had a chance to expose them to our wines with their fine cuisine and every chef, every one of them brought our wines to their restaurants in France. I'm sure we were the last item on the last page, but we were there. And today again, when you go to Europe, to the main countries, Germany, France, UK, and so forth, and the, 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 the Benelux countries, the, 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 the Scandinavian countries, they may not know much about, but they know Robert Mondavi. The name stayed. He also had the personality. He, he was so open, so generous, you know. If you had come with Robert there, and he started to taste maybe some Cabernets. Well, he'd go to the closet and pull out a first gross, put a brown bag over it, and afterwards said, you tell me. It doesn't matter, he said. If you prefer that one, it's fine. But he wanted to have the chance to give you the choice. Huh? How did your relationship with Robert? Well, we started. He started. Well, I never knew he met Charles Cook for two and a half years. Now, he was always he was into everything. You know, he must have been at the winery at six in the morning and he didn't leave. I don't know till when. And so we then with this program we started to talk and then. We started to kind of look at each other, my God. And so things kind of went into another direction. But we had a big problem. We were both married. And so, and, and our relationship was always kind of serious from the beginning. We wanted to get together. But how? How? Two divorces, all that. And so we got married in 1980. What was it like living with him? <laughs> it was living with a storm. <laughs> Great. The wonderful, wonderful person. Yeah. I, I had 27, my happiest years with him, or 28, yeah. Married 28 years. <laughs> what was his approach to running the winery? Well, for one thing, he, you know, he was also very humble. So he, everybody liked him very much. On Tuesday, he would go to the buttercream bakery and buy bags of donuts, and he brought them to every worker in and per personally, you know, door to his office was always open. He had time for everybody. 
Seemed like he often was fairly positive. He didn't have a negative bone in his body. And he always had the best advice for everybody. As you can imagine, Napa Valley started to kind of open up and develop. And many people came and said, we have an idea about a winery, we were a restaurant or something. And Bob would give him all the best advice what you could do. And if anybody said, said, but that's competition, he said, competition? The more good wines that come out of Napa Valley, the better it is for me. And he helped, be it with a truck that they needed, be it with crushing some grapes, be it with glasses, be it with recommendations, be it with money. He always was there for everybody. Do you People th- don't forget. Do you think that that style of blending culture with the wine of Napa Valley and then also of having open tours sort of set a benchmark for the region? I think so, yes. There's much is happening today that didn't happen 30 years ago. Because a lot of times when I think about other wine regions, I don't necessarily think about the same amount of concerts or touring or public accessibility. It's become a destination place. We have more visitors than Disneyland. So. <laughs> when you would travel with him and he would go to a, a restaurant, yeah. what would happen? Well, people usually recognize him, and if they didn't, they soon realized he would suddenly order five wines. <laughs> it was always a wine tasting. He would look at the list and he said, Oh, gotta try this. <laughs> we had, and then he would invite the chef, the owner, the sommelier, whatever, to taste a little with him. It was an event. And you developed the art program at the winery? Yes. And how did that come along? Good. (laughs) It came along good, yes. As I can tell you, the concerts then became kind of big time because I could have stars. And we we had to start... (laughs) to realize that we have to organize this a little more than what we did. And uh, I have friends that said they really, they planned their summer vacations around our concerts. Did you want to miss them? We had six to seven a year. Then cooking schools. Then the art shows. I started in 1972 with Richard Devoncorn, maybe not so well known on the sure, East Coast. San Francisco certainly. artists of <laughs> yes, summer now. Yes. Big time, yeah. You developed a relationship with University of California, Davis. That's a newest baby, yes. Why? The University of California, Davis, has probably, even a long time ago, the premier wine school in this country, I think pretty much worldwide. It's great faculty, and they had this horrible garage-like building that the tanks were cooking and everything. And Bob always said, we got to do something. We got to build them a, a new school, a new edifice. And uh, he contacted the witness. He thought it would be a great thing for the witness to get together and do that. And it never quite happened. And he never got them together. So he just took it on himself. And, and we started with building a performing arts center. Then the Enology Viticultures and Food Science School. And now we're working on a museum. And how long was that progress? How long did that take? Well, it's now 10 years for the Performing Arts Center, so about 10 years ago, yes. 
And what do you think Robert would be most proud of if he were to look back today, if he were still alive? I, I think he would be proud of the wines that he has produced, how he has, you know, because still his passion was in the wines. And, and maybe, for maybe having also been the great friend of the winemakers, of having started something that before that didn't exist to make Napa Valley what it was, which was where his heart was. What would you think to be the kind of standout memories of Robert that you have? What really? Well, for me, of course, it's also the man, the, the soul, the character he had. He was so honest. He never married 27, almost 28 years. He never told a lie. He said, my memory is too short. <laughs> but he was so honest, yes. It seemed like he liked to get a lot done in a day. Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> he started early and ended late and had time and, and time and energy and also the ear for everybody. What were sort of markers for you that the valley was changing over time? What were things that happened? Well, you know, actually, it was gradual. The first thing then was the first restaurant that we had that had some great characters and importance was Domaine Chandon. Then it started. Anyway, about two years after I came to Napa, they changed the law at the veterans' house, so the 20 bars disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> they paved the road, <laughs> and in 1970s, three guys bought an old defunct winery called Vintage 1870. And I remember when this came about, my then husband said, these three guys, one was the mayor, Schmidt Del Monte, and Caldwell, yeah. He said, they're crazy. Who's going to be out and who is going to young? Little did he know. Yeah. And then, of course, Thomas Kelly came with the French Laundry. And now we have two three-star restaurants. The other one is at Meadowwood with Christopher Kostov, and many two and one-star restaurants. And at the time, there, if you go buy three-stars, but you know, got to go buy something, there wasn't a, a three-star restaurant west of Chicago, none in Las Vegas, none in Los Angeles, none in San Francisco. Now, there is one in San Francisco, but not before. But Napa Valley had two. So, <laughs> so you watched it move from mixed farming and yeah, yeah, nuts. Yeah, and yeah, from prunes. <laughs> the prune orchards disappeared. <laughs> you saw Cabernet become quite popular. Especially in the Tocalonda region, yes, the... This, this Oakville region and the Rutherford region and all, all over the valley in, in East Valley, in the east side of Napa Valley, they make very good Cabernet. It's, it's the place, yes. What did Robert say about Cabernet? Well, he said Cabernet should have the softness of a baby's bottom and the power of a Pavarotti. You probably started to meet the children like Tim yes, and Robert. Yeah, Tim and, and Tim is now doing his own thing, which we are very proud of to continue. Right. What What were your memories of him in the 70s? Well, he was just a kid. <laughs> I think he graduated in 74 and started to work for us. Right. 
Well, obviously, there were problems, you know, with the children and me. I don't know, no. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think you know the world. <laughs> but we all came. You can, you can, yes. <laughs> and what are you most proud of? Well, first I have to say my children. And then well, I'm never forget Bob. It was, of course, uh, an alliance. But uh, I obviously found myself too through that. Yeah. Did that I paint, you know? And, <laughs> and you still paint today? Yeah, I still paint, and I'm writing my second book now. And the first book was based on your diaries? was based on my, my life, yes. What was that book like for you to write? And Can I send you one? Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I mean, have your card. I'll send you one. I, should, I don't have one with me, but I'll send you one. But what was it like to go through all those diary entries? And come? Well, you know, you relive, you relive those moments. And it's a good, good exercise to, for the positive and also the other things that happen in life. Mm-hmm. Did it surprise you the extent of change over the short period of time when you look back and saw the days slip by and what you yes, were talking about? Yes, in retrospect, when it happens, you don't really, you live it. But in retrospect, I am surprised of what happened, right? When you left Switzerland, did you think that wine was going to be a part of your life? No, but I wish you were glad it was. <laughs> Margaret Mendavi, she's very happy that wine has been a part of her life. Thank you for being here today. Thank you very much. I really liked your moderation. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I like you quite a bit too. Thank you very much. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.